How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Stretch the kindness, brush with madness. Is it sadness or just a show? Then go, 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 go. Then go, 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 go. Then go, 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 go. Marilyn Monroe swallowed the pill. Did she do it for love or was she tired of the thrill? since we were having such a healthy conversation, I forgot to go live on Facebook. So I'm doing that right now. <laughs> but and, and, uh, yes, I am in my home, buddy. This is my home domain you're looking at right now. That's right. And that's that's what this is about. And Tom? Hello. Where, where are you at now? I'm, uh, I'm at the studio. You are? Yep. And is this going to be the last night that you that are calling? No. Uh, uh, I, who are we kidding? I got to be here. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. And let me introduce to everybody Lisa Volpe, who is an attorney from New York City, who is, you're there on Long Island right now. Is that right? I am. I live on Long Island. Yeah. Ah. I work there as well. And, and I'm so grateful that you are here to, to really talk about some of the ramifications that we have not really addressed about COVID and coronavirus. And we should be joined... Uh, relatively soon, I'm just getting a text from her from Dr. Ann, who uh, is going to be calling in from Austin, Texas, who is also on the front line. So it's going to be a really great show, and I I, I want people to be prepared. Um, you know, this this is going to go into places where most people don't talk about. Um, you know, they they don't always talk about some of the the darker side. We talk about the anger, the stress, the anxiety, the depression. But there are some other ramifications of COVID-19 that are uh, are powerful. And here's here's Dr. Ann coming in. And and who is that? Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm good. 
Good, how are you? Great. We are live on WATD. Dr. Ann, let me uh, reintroduce you to Mark, my co-host, and Tom, my other co-host. And up there is Lisa Volpe, an attorney from New York City. And uh, we are just getting started, so welcome. It's an amazing view you have, Ann. Oh, thank you. We just had a huge storm here, so I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> it looks very nice. Wait, Joe, hang on one second. I'm going to, like, shout to my kid. Hang on one second. Okay. Ben, yeah. could you bring that picture of me, my Zoom picture? Because Joe... Yay! <laughs> good, good. Yes, yeah, so people understand, uh, Dr. Ann uh, was also one of the early Zoom kids. Which, se which season were you? Right after you. Yeah, yeah. Two, I guess, right? Season two. Yeah, yeah. So we go way back. It's really fun. And full disclosure, Lisa and I, look at that. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great picture. That is a great picture. It's the same O as Joe's. Yep, that's right. That's the Zoom logo. I love that. That's a beautiful picture. Same picture. Look, at. I never even got it framed. It's literally from the back of the WGBH wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me, me too. Yeah, totally. Same thing, with, right off the wall. That right off the wall. Hilarious. Yeah, I've That's right. Okay, so I'm going to photographer this here. Great, and just leave yours there too. It's great. Love it. How funny. Thank you, honey. So um, let, let me let me just um, ask Lisa first. So can you, Lisa, if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your background in the legal system and what you've been doing for folks there in New York? Sure. I am an advocate for people with mental disabilities, people who are in psychiatric hospitals, who are in the community and have psychiatric or developmental disabilities. And um, I try to advocate for whatever it is that they're seeking, whether it's to be released from confinement or uh, the quality of their care, the kind of treatment they're getting. Many people are trying to get into an appropriate um, residence and get the right kinds of services and treatment. And in, in this environment that we're in right now, there, um, all of those things come into play because there's a lack of housing. Where do those people go? They don't want to keep them in psychiatric hospitals or even in um, medical hospitals, and they want to get them out as soon as possible. If there's no housing, where do they go? Um, they're not necessarily the best candidates for treatment because so many people have serious comorbidities and, um, and add to that that often people with developmental disabilities can't express themselves. And in the hospital, they no longer have access to, at least in New York at the moment, we hope that will change with more advocacy. They don't have access to their caregivers and loved ones when they're you know, truly an extremis. And all of this creates an environment for people with disabilities that is in many ways just so unequal to what everybody else, as awful as their experiences are the, for, for people who, who don't have disabilities, it's compounded tremendously uh, for those people who really are struggling in their everyday lives, every moment of their lives. So 
Um, the advocacy has been tremendous in New York, not just my organization, but all of the uh, disability rights organizations. And I know across the state, across the country, they're, they're all doing the same thing. Um, what we're experiencing, experiencing in New York now is that um, the state agencies have been slow to come up to what we are hoping uh, in terms of their response to the difficulties we're seeing among our population. And um, we're starting to see some response now. It's taken a long time for everybody to coordinate between the medical organizations, the care organizations, the, the rights organizations, and then the state agencies. And we're now, what, three weeks into the serious pandemic uh, crisis situation, and everybody is beginning to talk to each other. And I, I suppose that was because we were all sort of getting the feel of what, what our concerns were and what our priorities were. Um, but I think from the disability rights advocates, uh, the, those with disabilities are still very low on the priority list. Hmm. Those are the concerns I'm dealing with on a daily basis. I mean, it's, it's sort of scary stuff. I mean, we're, we're facing a, an epidemic, a pandemic likes of which we haven't really experienced in, in our generation. And now there's, there's this additional component. I mean, there's one nuance after another, I think is coming up uh, as we go further. Dr. Ann, what, what are you guys doing there in Austin? How's, how's, your, how's your preparation coming? Turn your mic on. Turn your mic mic on. There we go. <laughs> we haven't we haven't done studio work in a long time. You can see that. So. Really long time, and I'm still the baby. This is yeah, baby. This kind of Zoom. Um, we are very much in a hurry up and wait situation here. We got a big rush saying that our surge was going to start actually right around now, and we've in this town done a super good job with the social distancing. So we've actually flattened our curve, which is fantastic. Um, so that now they're pushing those dates back a little bit, but I don't work directly in the hospital since I do so much international work, but my husband's actually a physician and he does work in the hospital. And uh, we've got several COVID patients, but by no means is it overwhelming our system at all. We're Lisa very much in your situation of how do different groups of care providers communicate with each other? You have the state and the city who've come in and they have one sort of set way of doing things. And then in our community, private practice is a, a, the major component of most healthcare. And so that group of people operates in a very different way and mm -hmm. figure out who's gonna have the right personal protective equipment and who's gonna take care of what sets of, sets of patients. It's, it's been, I think, a communication challenge in every direction. It has, we, we're lucky in that, um, Although we don't all communicate with the same people all the time, uh, the, the core group of people have been terrific about reaching out rather aggressively and, and um, making contact with the, the medical uh, groups, the, you know, uh, places like Northwell and NYU Langone. I mean, the really big hospital at Mount Sinai as well. And... Um, and they've been reaching out to us and, and the questions they're asking are really incredibly serious. I mean, when, when, when the hospitals reach out to you and say, how do we go about, in essence, circumventing 
the laws that are in place to protect people with disabilities at their end of life so that they are not treated less than people who don't have those disabilities. We have in New York laws that are in place that you must follow in order to ensure that the person who is uh, for whom an end-of-life decision is being made uh, meets end-of-life medical criteria. And it's a pretty high bar. Um, and it's very difficult for the doctors to make those kinds of decisions and to get a capacity determination for that individual that they can't express themselves or make decisions on themselves in such a crisis environment. You just, they don't have those resources. And so early last week, they were reaching out to us and saying, are there ways that we can shorten that process? And until the governor says you can circumvent the laws, how do you do that? You just can't. So it's a quandary for everybody. And add to that the problem of uh, how you uh, allocate ventilators. Right. We in New York, and I believe in Massachusetts as well, They and you probably have it in Austin, I'm sure we have it in every state, there is some kind of a pandemic plan that speaks specifically to the uh, ventilator allocation. And it, it arose after the SARS epidemics. And this is part of what we're talking about is, is you know, not to, not to be flippant, how do we keep people alive? Yeah. That's really the issue. So, you know, Dr. Ann, have, have you been in a position, not necessarily with, with this particular pandemic, but in general, where as a physician, you have to make some choices. And if your husband is around and wants to, to hop on, more than welcome, more than welcome. Don't forget to turn your mic on. <laughs> You're gonna have to tell me that every time. I will. Um, you know, I think that whenever you're dealing with somebody whose quality of life would be compromised at a level that everybody has to take a little care to think about what the next step is, or if their quality of life would be compromised to not take valiant efforts, then it, the time just comes to be thoughtful about that. Um, so yeah, I've seen that in places where I didn't speak the same language as people and, and certainly in the hospital as well. It is difficult because you have to very quickly take a look at what you think the other person's value system is in judgment system. It's not really about what I think should happen necessarily, but then combine that with the fact that as a physician, I might have a little better medical knowledge about what the next thing is that's going to happen. And so sometimes that's terrible news to bring to people. But a lot of times I find that people are very comforted if you're really straightforward with them about what the next few steps may be. I think what's so crazy about this particular coronavirus is that people already know what could happen to them because we're literally watching this epidemic happen right in front of our eyes. And everybody knows that they could be one of the 5% of people that end up on a ventilator. So that puts a different spin on the level of anxiety around the whole country that we're all being thrown into this pandemic, into this situation. I think that's where a lot of this anxiety comes from. Yeah. And again, as a physician, it is, you know, I want, I want people to sort of understand what what this really means because 
it's it has never really been our job to decide who lives and who dies. You know, our first rule is do no harm. But I think, you know, what what Lisa is, is talking about is what happens when we're in a position where we do have limited resources. And this is this is something that there is no clean answer to. And for our listening audience, I, I would welcome your thoughts on this. But how we make how we meant to make a decision and i and the reason i wanted you know the counselor here is, is to say how do we protect those people who may be the most vulnerable not not just to coronavirus and, and covid but in general a group of people in our population who many people just turn their backs on because they don't think they're valuable they think because remember this is all i am some people don't think people's I am is valuable. We've had this not just in, you know, psychiatric conditions, mental health conditions, addiction conditions. We've had in our world for a long time, one race against another, one religion against another. And that's why I really wanted to talk about this because the I am is saying, no, 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 we're one group. We're one group, it's called humanity. But the reality is, what happens when there's just not enough to go around? It's a terrifying thought. So, so Lisa, where where are you at with this? How do you how do you advocate? And, and what happens when you get pushback? Well, luckily, we're not getting a lot of pushback active pushback. Nobody's saying we're not going to treat your population. But um, we do have this ventilator allocation guideline, which has implicit bias mm. because it sets it up so that the people, uh, they, they sort of triage. Um, a clinician looks first and says, this person has whatever illnesses, underlying illnesses, and um, some people won't even make it to the list of people who are, might be eligible for ventilator support. Some people will, but are maybe marginal and may be on the list and may get a ventilator. But then at certain points uh, over a period of two to five days, they're reassessed. And if you don't make progress fast enough, you're, you're taken off the ventilator likely because somebody else will do better because the goal becomes not do do no harm but how many lives can we save and it's inevitable when you're trying to save as many lives as possible that choices have to be made and i i mean this is a herculean task i i admire and and sympathize with i i don't know how to empathize because i can't imagine what it's like to be a doctor in a situation of having to choose like that um, because most doctors in our uh, in our generation have never been in that kind of situation. But I, to get back to that implicit bias, you bring your own human um, feelings and maybe what you've brought, been brought up with or what you've been exposed to, to how you view somebody with disabilities. And then the reality is that most people with disabilities, they they range from not very disabled, 
to very, very disabled, both, both physically and mentally. So they can't communicate. They have many comorbidities. And many of those comorbidities are on the list of exclusionary psych criteria. So they might be off the list for ventilator depend, uh, support before they even make it to the hospital. They have no, and, and what happens to those people? And even those people who maybe are showing some signs but are getting turned away from the hospital, which is happening a lot for people in group homes, they go back to their group homes, people are dying there and they can't be with their family members because they've now been cut off from visitation. They have, uh, if they're lucky, they have caregivers who are, are there on a daily basis and know them, so they have that kind of comfort. But what about the people who do get admitted to the hospital, but there's no visitation, certainly not in ICU, but no longer even in the hospital beds. So now those people are extremely ill, can't communicate easily, so they can't even say how badly they feel, and they're dying alone. It's heartbreaking. And the best, I mean, so what are we doing? We're trying to um, ask the government to uh, relax some of the visitation rules so that people who are truly disabled have somebody to be with them who can comfort them. And um, we're trying to make sure that uh, people don't just get sent home from the hospitals, but it's happening by the thousands now. Uh, on Long Island, where I think we've had something like 33,000 people, or it's about 66,000 people have been tested, and about half of them have tested positive. Wow. And, and of the group homes, many, many, many people now have been exposed, both the caregivers and the residents. And then there's this other part of it, which is what there's not enough protection, personal protection, masks, gloves, gowns. Um, people are scrounging and they're sort of on their own because the government just doesn't have enough to go around and they give it to the, care, the, the, the medical personnel first, rightly so, but um, it leaves everybody else tremendously vulnerable. So I... There's no easy answer. The best we can do is just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, meeting daily. We're all in our own homes. And uh, the lawyers I work with are um, doing court hearings when they have to remotely. Uh, doctors are doing telemedicine in order to determine capacity and, and all of those kinds of things. But um, it's, a, it's a faulty system at best. It certainly it will stand the test of time. And if we ever have to go through something like this again, um, we'll certainly be a lot better prepared and I hope we'll learn from it. But it's been a really slow process and, and uh, I hope that the pandemic dies down, at least this first wave, before we even have it all perfected because that would be so much better than you know, having it perfected and, and knowing that we lost so many lives in the meantime. No real answer, is there, Joe? No, I, I wish wish we could come up with one here, but the only, again, not to be flipped, the only answer that I have for us right now is to take a pause and think about it. Dr. Ann, what is going on? What are you learning from all of our stuff that's happening out here on the different coasts? We're learning so much unfortunately at the cost of a lot of lives. 
what are, what are you guys doing there in Texas? You say, you know, you, you're sitting there, you know, getting ready and waiting. What, what's the prep? What's going on? Well, you know, my husband and I were talking about it. It sort of feels like we're in a zombie movie. I mean, it's beautiful outside. The birds are still singing. It's incredibly quiet everywhere we go. We, there are patients in the hospital who are sick, but everybody else is just sort of hunkering down, trying to stay socially distanced. Don't go to HEB. We're all wearing face masks at HEB right now, which that is so weird. So a, a large part for me is just what it's like to be a person with a acute awareness of how horrible it could be from a medical perspective. And the doctors who are still in the hospitals are just petrified that they could actually fall prey to this illness because you know the the some estimates of the mortality rate for physicians that are older who are taking care of this population is 20 percent which mm. is incredibly high so then you've got the whole decision about what are you going to do are you going to step in there and do your job and the part about whether or not there's enough personal protective equipment is sort of a social contract with the, if you are providing care through an institution to a, a population that needs that's neglected in one way or another, are you are are you bound to do that if you can't be pr protected yourself? And then that puts you and your family at risk and the people all around you. So that's a question that comes up. That's a lot as the same sort of ethical dilemma as the question of who do you have to, who how do you choose who you care for? That's another huge ethical dilemma. And then coming home and dealing with your family and changes of income and all the other things that are going along with it. It's, it, it's a big issue in another thing that I'm seeing personally, that's kind of what we're talking about is my work is primarily international. And I work with a lot of communities that don't have, have hospitals to go to. And there's not this beautiful gleaming white hospital with a great operating room or any ventilators at all. And I've seen people on ventilators in developing nations that would just chill you to your bones to see how that gets handled under those circumstances where people just have limited opportunity to have education and advanced knowledge about this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the populations that we're speaking to, they're just waiting for this to come and they know that they're just gonna lose 20% of their population. It's just sort of a given. And that's a whole other bizarre thing to even consider. Well, the, it's it's just surreal for us, although Lisa, it's gotta be the absolute deepest reality for you to be living in this situation. And we're we're sort of observers still, but very much grappling with the same ethical issues. Well, I I I think inevitably it'll come to you in one form or another. I hope that you don't have to make choices about who goes on a ventilator. I know in New York of at least one um, hospital organization, and now you know we're talking about many, many hospitals now because they're all joined together under one roof or under several roofs. And um, they have put out a, uh, a allocation guideline that follows the 2015 guideline that I'm talking about, but they're, they're there they're dealing with the possibility and probably at this point they're in enacting the the guidance because they have no choice so what does that really mean for our population well the guidelines start out by saying 
we do not discriminate in any way. Everybody gets the same kind of care, but here's the way we're going to triage it. And the minute you triage it, your um, th the implicit bias is against people who have other illnesses because they are the weakest and they're the least likely to survive. And that not only touches people with mental and physical disabilities, but people of color. And we're seeing, uh, certainly on Long Island that, and in New York City, without a doubt, um, people of color are, uh, are testing positive and, of course, many going the way of, of illness and possible death because they're more ill. But also want to mention that that's the virus. It's not doctors making that decision. The virus preys on people who are already sick. The virus preys on people of color, new discovery. That's the discovery of the last 48 hours. The virus goes after the elderly. So it's not, I, I hate to have it be only that doctors are having to make that sort of stratification. I think the virus did it for us already. And You're so absolutely right. And, and I, uh, that's, I, I like the idea of taking away some of that, uh, you know, I don't want to call it fault or blame, but that's a little bit how it feels. And that's certainly not what I mean. Um, when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about if you, if you do those stratifications, and you ignore whether a person has a disability, whether they have, uh, whether they're of color or whatever their background, whether they're elderly, it's still more likely that those people are gonna be triaged as less likely to get the same ventilator support. And they're gonna be lower on the list because they're the people who have, who have more, more comorbidities. And that's just the real reality of triaging. So when I talk about the implicit bias, and I'm, I'm not even factoring in the bias that every one of us brings, as much as I would like to think that everybody will take the I am approach, Dr. Joe, at some point in their lives, this is not the best time for it because people fall back on the biases and their fears mm -hmm play in so much, just as Dr. Ann was just talking about. Fear comes into the decisions and the equations that we all make, whether we're doctors or caregivers or whatever we do. Yes, absolutely. But it is our amazing ability to recognize that that's important. And recognition is a thinking function, not a feeling function. When we can recognize these biases, we can do something about it. And we, you know, we, we have avoided politics and things like that in the Dr. Joe show purposely because it's still an I am. Mm -hmm. But my concern is that this, this is, is exposing once again this part of who we also are as humans. You know, we can be really, really good at reminding somebody of their value, but we're also really good at putting people down. We're really good at separating people at saying you're not worthy enough. And that's my concern, is that this virus will push us in that direction, as opposed to saying, how do we, how do we work this out? How do we figure this out? 
medically, ethically, morally? How do we do it together? You know, our first rule as physicians is do no harm. But this puts us in a position to do the least amount of harm. Right? That's, that's what this pandemic is, is making us do. It's saying, okay, I, I am being put in a position where I'm going to have to choose. And we have these point systems, you know, that, as you say, are, are somewhat arbitrary, but we were having this discussion the other day. Let's say you've got a person who has diabetes, but they've got four kids, uh, and they can, can help other people, um, but they get COVID. Are they now pushed down the list of triage because they've got diabetes? What about the person who uh, has no kids, um, uh, still, you know, is, is living in a community, but, but they don't have another family to take care of? Uh, do they then, because they don't have diabetes, do they get pushed up the list? See what I'm saying? It, it's not as it, it's not simple. So, you're asking to you're asking to value a life, right? That's the thing. And how do we really do that? How can we do that, Mark? What, what do you think about this? I think it's I think it's it's virtually impossible, and to have that responsibility is is not it, it's not sustainable for any one person to be able to to make those decisions when people start. And, you know, I, I don't really know where we are with the resources. Are we, are, is there no way that there's going to be enough uh, ventilators for the amount of people that are coming in? Is that, that clear? Like Italy put a, put a tag on. If you're 80 years old or older, we're sorry. You've had a good life. Don't come. You're not persona non grata at the, at the hospital. I mean, is that, are we at a point in the United States that we don't, because I know there's been an effort for companies to start making ventilators and there's a, been a, you know, a, a massive um, effort to do that. Are we at risk? I'll ask the, the guests, are we at risk for being outnumbered and, and having to make these ridiculously unfair choices? And what do you think? I think that one of the reasons that there has been such an intense race, both in the public and particularly in the private sector, I'm so impressed with the private sector, is that we just won't accept that. Right. No one's going to say we're that you can't come in here because you're 80 years old. And I think that it may be unspoken. We need ventilators. People don't say, well, we need ventilators because we're not willing as a society to place a lower value on one person's life over another. That is what we're saying when we say we need ventilators. And so I think instead of spending a whole lot of time making those decisions or creating those criteria, and I know they have been created, that's the job of people in the ridiculously horrible position to have to do that, but it's wise to do it before you're in the emergency. But we've had vastly more people saying, how can we fix this? My brother-in-law made an external ventilator, a breathing machine that you just strap around your waist and it works really well. And he did it in this garage. I mean, people are, are responding in that way, in ways of ingenuity. And, and we've got here in Austin, there's many entrepreneurs who are working on how to put together ventilators, how to make them out of parts, pieces that we already have. So I think as a society, we've sort of refused 
to join the conversation of who doesn't get a ventilator and instead everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and how can we make this work That's and I'm and the reality is that we are not yet there um that one medical organization put out that guidance is their way of saying we're recognizing the realities and we're prepared for it which i think is the right thing to do but i think dr ann is right that as a society we don't we've never accepted um less than the very best that we could do and this is an opportunity to to really show that and and i hope i hope that we succeed i think in social distancing i know that in new york they're starting to say that they're seeing a kind of leveling out and that may be society's way of responding as dr ann is saying uh and making sure that we don't get to that point and if we have anything to say about it i think that's that's absolutely where we're going to be but i think social distancing has been a brilliant um and and quite successful way of of keeping it from going any further i have to say in long island though i i i had to go to the grocery store and it was shocking to me how many people were walking around without a mask and without gloves at this point and i know that they're going home with their fruit in their boxes and they're not cleaning them but it's so easy to do why wouldn't you and yet people don't so oh, no Okay. I mean, we can't blame them. I mean, they're in a, they're put in an impossible impossible situation. And they're just doing the best that they can, right? Isn't that Yeah, and and again, it's 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 not about blame, but we all have responsibility. There's a difference between responsibility and blame. Right? Responsibility is empowering and we all can take some. Go ahead, Ann. I was just going to say that I think conversations like this where you do get a chance to say to to make it not be about blame this is amazingly the third interview that I've done and I was on another interview and they the the host brought up are, are you frustrated at those college kids who are all still going out on spring break and all the people partying and you know yes but really not because they're just like the people in the grocery store who haven't been weren't appropriately educated enough to where they went oh my gosh i don't want this right and came home so here's a, yet another example that i think is incredibly powerful you we were talking about that i'm in texas so at, in austin so the universities here in this town and my organization one good turn is already this morning we got contacted by a bunch of college kids who wanted to make a difference they didn't want to be seen as the college kids who are out there partying all the time they started a facebook group and they picked the the population that they want to reach out to which is the elderly people they're working on messaging toward that they're sending out groupme texts everywhere they've got these cool ideas about making postcards with something that you write on the front of it saying hi i'm thinking about you and on the back a little health tip and they are putting this together because they don't want to be part of the problem they want to be part of the solution and this is actually a great opportunity for so many people it's the search for relevancy we all want to be relevant we all want to be part of the solution under this circumstance and i've seen it over and over and over again with private people and kids and this wonderful college group that literally got started this morning and it's just it's a great opportunity for people to recognize that we can be part of the solution and 
that we can all do that together. And sometimes it takes something as dramatic as a pandemic for us to realize that we can be part of the solution. And I hope that then having people sharing that experience, that it will affect us long beyond this pandemic in recognizing that we can actually all act together as a society to just stave something like this off. Right. While we, we got you, you want to just tell folks about One Good Turn and then what you've created? Oh, sure. Um, One Good Turn is a global nonprofit. It's a medical nonprofit, and we provide practical medical education and culturally sensitive medical care to neglected communities all over the world. And so my job is to go to a community where there are care providers already taking care of everybody there and just make sure that they have the appropriate tools to do the best job they can. And that may be learning about how to do a good physical exam or understanding more about the sorts of medicines that they have available to them and what medicine matches what illness, um, teaching people about subjective versus objective decision-making so that they learn that it's not just about what people are feeling, but also about some of the physical or the physical findings that we have with say a pneumonia or asthma. And so that's what we do. And coronavirus happens to have been the, the way that we work, which is low, low amount, high frequency learning works really, really well for coronavirus and for public education. So we really pivoted to provide the same type of education that we do internationally to right here in America. And it's, worked out really well. So that's why I happen to know so much about coronavirus because I've needed to learn about it a lot so that I can teach people around me and teach the people in other countries as well. Yeah, and, and, and I'm fortunate enough to, to be on that mailing list now. So I, I get these remarkable updates every day that is looking at, at really legitimate sources. How, do, how, how can people get on your mailing list so that they can get those things? Oh, thanks. Just go to www.onegoodturn.org, O-R-G, and uh, you can very easily sign up there. We're also on Facebook. I think that's the number one good turn, and then Instagram, and it's just one.god.turn. Yeah, it, it, it's a really good source because, you know, there's a lot of news out there that's sort of, sort of sensational and, and a lot of stuff that, that you're not really sure about. But, but they really curate uh, sources that, that I believe in. And I've, I've also learned a lot. I, I go to those links every day and I'm just seeing what's being published. Um, it's really fascinating in the literature how much is being published and how quickly papers are being pushed through the peer review process, which has its pluses and minuses, because there may be stuff that's coming out even in peer review articles that later on we'll say, nah, maybe that wasn't quite the case. Yeah. But it is definitely worth checking out. Well, thank you. you. Know, it's worth checking out. Lisa, Lisa want to add something? It sounds like a wonderful organization, and I'm going to get on that list as well. I would also like to just point people to um, their own state government's websites, which have very basic information, but it comes from the CDC and... It's, it may not be uh, articles and um, more medical information, but it is very important information about how to keep your hands clean, how to sell, uh, social distance, and the kinds of the ways you can uh, get food if you need it. 
really the very basic everyday things that you need to survive. So it's a very good resource and people should reach out to that as well on a daily basis. Things change every day. Right. And, and that's the part that, that's fluid about it is, is things are changing. But I think what, what this coronavirus has done is equalize us. And I think that's, that's a good thing for us to remember that, that we really are in this together. And if we're faced with a position where we have to choose who lives or who dies, I don't wanna to have to be in that position. I don't want us to have to have that limited resource where we've gotta say, you get it and you don't. We don't need to do that. Now, you know, Dr. Ann, you, you work in countries where they have limited resources to begin with. We are in a privileged position here in the United States, but we also have to become leaders. What we do now, how we make these decisions is gonna send a very important message to the rest of the world about how we treat each other as human beings, how we value each other. And yeah, it, maybe it's idealistic, I don't think so. I think that this is that pivot moment in our in our humanity. Say, who do we really want to be? We can go right back. We can go right back to tribalism. Easy to do. Really easy for us to say, you know, you don't quite cut it. And so we're going to cut you off. And there's going to be an elite group that would do that. But boy, I'm not there, man. That's not what I want to do. How do we help everybody? And social distancing is one way to do it. It's not the same as emotional distancing. It's really important people understand that. Just because we're following the rule to keep ourselves a little bit apart doesn't mean we have to do that emotionally. We need to be connected emotionally. And that's part of what is, is I think, so amazing about what I'm seeing in our technology for those of us who have it. I will be perfectly honest. Lisa and I and some others, we had a Zoom dinner on Saturday. We had a couple from Maine, Long Island, and two parts of Massachusetts. It was delightful. For my wife's birthday last week, I'm not gonna tell you how old she is, but um, I bought pizza for people in two parts of California, um, in multiple parts of Massachusetts, so that they could all be in a surprise pizza party for Cal. She didn't know what was happening. Say, come on into the living room, sweetheart. And she comes in, we, and there's our pizza, and there are everybody on the TV singing her happy birthday. This is what we can do with each other right now, folks reach out to somebody that you might not have spoken to in a while, just to find out how they're doing, just to see if they're okay. Just do something small like that. Remember, small changes can have big effects. With that in mind, two rules of the IM, small changes have big effects. Lisa, what small change can you recommend to our folks? And then I'm gonna come to you, Anne. What small change can you recommend to our folks that can have a big effect? I would recommend just trying to think of everybody as the same as they are 
and look at them whether they have especially if they have a disability try to look at them and treat them in the same way that they would want to be treated yeah and i and i'd say it's, it's an i am it's a unique ability not a disability it's a unique ability they are remarkable people and what about you what small change uh make eye contact with people we all have masks on we're all a little bit further away mm -hmm. from each other than we normally are make really good eye contact with people they'll be surprised you'll be surprised and you'll have a connected moment even though we've got our mouths all covered up and then the last thing we control no one we influence everyone I'm going to start with you, Anne, and then go to you, Lisa. What kind of influence are you hoping to be? Anne, what kind of influence are you hoping to be? I hope to be... I hope that people can understand that you can share knowledge without being judgmental. Hmm. Lisa, how about you? I hope to just be able to communicate with as many people as possible to, to represent the people that I am most worried about now. And just to add to Anne's mask, I make sure that when I'm wearing my mask and I'm out in the supermarket that I say hello to everybody that I meet. Mm. Regardless of the response I get, I want them to know that I'm smiling behind my mask. Thank you. Folks, great show. We're gonna we're gonna do this together. Everyone's at an IM. Let's just respect that about each other. We'll see you next week. Bye guys. Thank you, Joe.